listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we're talking about Malico Records, the longest-running independent label in American history. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. We'll also review two new records, the Marfa tapes from Miranda Lambert and the Norwegian indie pop of Girl in Red. I've seen El Paso in the sky was on fire Lost a night in worries a couple of times with a cowboy on a straight tequila high. I wish I was in his arms tonight That is a track called In His Arms from the new album by Jack Ingram, Miranda Lambert, and John Randall called The Marfa Tapes. Uh, longtime friends from the Texas singer-songwriter scene, Ingram, Lambert, and Randall, the best-known name among those three, obviously, Miranda Lambert. She is a superstar in country world. Uh, managed to carve out an identity uh, selling millions of records, winning Grammy Awards, uh, despite the fact that she's a little left to center. She's not exactly a mainstream <laughs> artist, but she's made herself a mainstream artist by you know, artistic vision and pure talent, and uh, done that over a couple of decades. Her pals Jack Ingram and uh, John Randall, perhaps less of household names, but equally respected in the singer-songwriter uh, scene in, in, the con- in country music. Uh, they are all uh, Texas-bred uh, singer-songwriters and coming out of a great, long tradition there. Uh, they have been hanging out for a number of years. And uh, in this particular instance, the Marfa Tapes, that is a location, a remote location in West Texas. become a little touristy in recent years. But it's, prior to that... It's become an artist's yeah. boho hangout. I'll tell you how cool it is. We aired for years on KRTS Public Radio there, and now we don't. We're not cool <laughs> enough anymore for Marfa, Greg. I guess. I, uh, I do know that it was cool enough for uh, the, the, these three songwriters to gather at this ranch outside of Marfa in the West Texas desert, the high desert, as they call it in, uh, in West Texas, uh, to write songs over the years. And uh, th- this, in this particular session, uh, they revisited material that they had been working on together for a couple of uh, Lambert's albums and, and just sat out and did stripped-down versions of them. A couple of the songs landed, actually landed on Lambert records, and they ended up, ended up doing... Uh, sort of the the demo-type versions of those songs, Uh, but also a ton of material that never had surfaced prior to this uh, that they rolled out for this particular project. So it's basically just the three of them, tape recorder, uh, the recording studio is a ranch house, and and in some cases they were outdoors uh, while recording. Uh, Very, uh, let's say, this is not the traditional way of making records in Nashville these days. Uh, it's called the Marfa Tapes from Jack Ingram, Mar- Miranda Lambert, and John Randall. And here's one of the tracks from it. It's called Two Step Down to Texas on Sound Opinions. If you ever get time to two step down to Texas, find yourself down around Austin Way. I'll be waiting every time with my cowboy hat and one. If you two step down to Texas and go stepping Honey, if we get the boo, we'll look for Stevie Ray. 
Two Step Down to Texas, Miranda Lambert and Friends on the Marfa Tapes. Greg, this is my kind of country. You know, I, I uh, have not been to many campfire hootenanny sing-alongs, mm-hmm. uh, having been raised in Jersey City and Hoboken, having lived in Chicago since 92, right? You know, you set a fire around here, the fire department comes. Um, you know, but this has that vibe of good friends. This has the vibe that that documentary we talked about a few weeks ago about Towns Van Zandt, Guy Clark, and Susanna Clark. Mm-hmm. You know, three friends, two men, one woman, uh, gathering uh, to celebrate great songwriting. And Miranda Lambert is a great songwriter. Uh, Tin Man, uh, one of her big breakthrough hits, a fantastic song, is rendered here in this down-home way. One microphone. By the way there, Mr. Tin You don't mind the scars You give me your arm And you can have my They're talking to each other. They're encouraging each other. That was beautiful. Oh, my string was buzzing. Oh, don't worry about it, right? That was your brain buzzing. That's great. Um, You know, you you hear background noise and, you know, bats swooping in, whatever. I don't know. Uh, It's part of the charm. Uh, and, And the songs are what make it so wonderful. To be clear, it's not a Miranda Lambert album. It's a Miranda and Friends album, but her voice is so powerful. It really carries the day. And there are some just beautiful, beautiful moments. I'm disappointed you didn't want to play the tomato song. Homegrown Tomatoes. Tequila shots, Bud Light top. Yes, she's a little instigator. It's party time. We're up on the fine Homegrown Tomatoes. I think uh, it's a metaphor for maybe growing something of your own that's a little more psychotropic. Mm. Uh, but, but the harmonies are fantastic, and the noise and the ambience. And I now feel as if I have done the campfire hootenanny thing, <laughs> even though I never have. You have, Jim. Uh, this, uh, this record just uh, evokes the wide open spaces of West Texas. Um, there's a lot of space in these arrangements, too, which I love about this record. Uh, there's a whole bunch of nothing out there, a lot of big sky, a lot of endless, endless, as uh, Kraftwerk might say. Uh, the the whole notion of that emptiness uh, fills these songs. The, the idea that, you know, your voices and uh, a guitar are all you really need to convey the emotions behind the song. And yeah, I Often think, there's one guitar. Yeah, and it's, and it's beautiful. I, I, I wanted to play uh, Two Step Down to Texas because, it, to me, it, it, it exudes the camaraderie the laughter that, you know, you can tell they're having a great time just entertaining each other mm-hmm. uh, with these songs. And, and you, you know, they're whistling, they're hand clapping in that song. Uh-huh. That evokes that sort of hootenanny atmosphere. But in, in addition to them, just the, the spontaneity of these performances, you do have the, these ballads, especially, they, they, they cut pretty deep in this very stripped down sort of setting. Uh, you know, when we're talking about songs like We'll Always Have the Blues and Waxahachie and Ghost, and they take turns singing, you know, lead vocals on yeah. these tracks or, or, and, and harmonizing with each other. Those are really powerful uh, moments. And I think this record is one of the best records of any of their careers. Uh, Miranda Lambert has got a ton of fantastic records. Yeah. But, 
you know, this is one of those go-tos that I'm going to be listening to for a long you, time. You mentioned that song, Waxahachie. Lambert's yeah. attitude is so classic. When she sings, nobody ever left New Orleans as mad as I was. I wrote a lipstick letter on the mirror with yeah, a bourbon right. buzz. Yeah. You know, it's like, wow, that, that, you know, you go. As mad as I was. Exactly, and you know she's evoking a lot of her, you know, uh, background in the Pistol Annies in that in that particular yeah. track. But she's bringing it all together with these guys, and I think the fact that she feels so at home with them is very apparent when you listen to this. Yeah, That is a little bit of the song Rue, R-U-E, by Girl in Red from her first full album, If I Could Make It Go Quiet. Girl in Red, Marie Ulven of Horten, Norway, just south of Oslo, I am told, Mr. Cott, mm-hmm. uh, started out as a bedroom artist, lo-fi, uh, writing songs at 15 and 16 years old, eventually building up enough of a following on social media that she was uh, streaming a song a month, uh, sharing a new song a month. You know, had a big, much-buzzed underground hit in 2017 with I Want to Be Your Girlfriend, which indicates much of what she writes about. She writes about coping with depression and struggling to maintain good mental health, something all of us can relate to after 18 months or so of lockdown. And she writes about her sexuality. Um, In fact, it is a much quoted, I've even had some of my students quote it to me. If you say to someone, uh, do you listen to Girl in Red, it means do you like girls Mm -hmm. like I do, if you're a young woman considering her sexuality. And that's extraordinary for such a young songwriter so early in her career to have made that much of a mark on culture. Uh, For her first full album, she got some production help. Usually it was her in her bedroom. This is a grander record, a more ambitious record. Let's play a track from it and we'll come back and give our reviews. This is the opening song, Serotonin, by Girl in Red from If I Could Make It Go Quiet. I'm running low on serotonin. Chemical imbalance got me twisting things. Stabilized with medicine there's no depth to these feelings dig deep can't hide from the corners of my mind i'm terrified of what's inside i get intrusive thoughts like cutting my hands off like jumping in front of a bus like how do i make this stop when it feels like my therapist hates me please don't let me go crazy put me in a field with daisies might not work but i'll take a minute
That is Sarah Tonin from Girl in Red, the new album, If I Could Make It Go Quiet, her debut solo album from this uh, very talented singer. It's interesting, when I started listening to this, I, I, I had an Avril Lavigne moment. I, I, wanted, really? I, I wanted to go back and sort of get, you know, the, the, sort of a pop rock vein, guitar driven, or at least the first few songs anyway. You know, there's there, there's this notion of young women uh, in the last couple of decades, especially uh, addressing that awkward phase between adolescence and adulthood. Mm-hmm. You know, they have their moment. Avril Lavigne had hers. Billie Eilish had hers. You know, there's a there's I mean, a close Billie Eilish connection. You here. know, and and absolutely, Phineas uh, Billy's uh, brother is on this record. Yeah. Uh, you know, sparingly, but he's a big part. You know, he's a big part of that song you just played. As a matter of fact. Yeah. So is uh, Biba Doobie whose record we reviewed in November. Exactly. And uh, the, the thing about uh, Olvin is that she is uh, a self-possessed star already. She's a singer, songwriter, and co-producer of this record. She's very hands-on uh, to what she's doing here. So as you said, she's gone, you know, she's gone that, through that bedroom folky phase uh, where she began, you know, very stripped down, to now she's splitting the difference, I think, between uh, punk pop and electro ballads on this on this record, and doing it very artfully. Serotonin, I thought, was a great choice to begin the record, because that whole notion of that rush, that overabundance of stuff coming at you, yeah. and just this explosion of energy. There's everything from uh, you know those guitars to to those EDM type moments in there. Mm-hmm. She's kind of blending together all these styles, the dreamy pop vocals over the top. There's more than a little shoegaze. Absolutely, and she's got all these different things that she wants to explore, and I think it's a signal that this album is sort of like, I'm going anywhere I want. I'm going to show all these different styles of music that I want to address, that I'm capable, that I love, and I want to... I want to write a song in that mode. So you go from uh, you know something like Rue, which is the electro pop song, to uh, Apartment 402, which is extremely introspective uh, type of ballad. There's a pain. There's no doubt. I've been through hell, but on my way out. And then you know I I love that song. Um, uh, horny, <laughs> horny love sick mess. That sort of whirlwind again is in that song, and I love the way that piano is sort of accented by those boom boom drums in the middle of the track. It sort of gives this sort of bouncy appeal to that song. I mean, it's 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 a it's kind of a cool, catchy pop song. Yeah. And and she's written a bunch of cool, catchy pop songs in a variety of styles on this record, addressing some heavy subjects. The whole idea of you know depression and 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 being gay and and being very open about it and being very vulnerable about it. She's presenting these topics in a very direct fashion, but in a way that uh, everybody can relate to from a standpoint of just pure pop. So you know, I. I this record is one of those records that doesn't put her in any kind of box at all. It says any direction's possible. She can go wherever she chooses. Yeah. No, I, I think the partnership with Matthias Tellez, the producer, uh, has really been good for her. I, 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 I am not giving him undue credit. I think this is 100% her vision. But having someone to help craft in the studio has expanded her sonic palette just immensely. Except she is 100% her own 
person, Greg. I mean, um, in choosing the tracks, uh, it wasn't a problem that, that like, what are we going to play that we really are excited about? Uh, every song, basically, including the instrumental. Uh, but boy, does she have some words in some of them. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, she, she is. She is not suffering fools lightly, and she is lashing out in anger. And I think the beauty of the songs, right? Those melodies, like you said, coupled with, uh, I don't think it has to be specifically a young person questioning his, her, or their sexuality. I think all of us have been questioning everything in the last year and a half. Uh, you know, uh, from from politics to the COVID epidemic to the climate. Right? This is an album about people ready to challenge the status quo, and I'd follow her to the barricades. <laughs> so that's what we thought of the new Girl in Red and Miranda Lambert albums. Now we want to know what you think about them. Uh, you can let us know your opinions in our Facebook group or in our Patreon community, or you can leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. Coming up, we hear the unlikely story of Malico Records. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. We're back. That is a little bit of When I Rose This Morning by the Mississippi Mass Choir. And it's a perfect example of Malico Records' unique place in the music industry. Many Sound Opinions listeners may not have heard that song that Malico Records put out in 1996. And yet, on YouTube, it has more than 22 million views. That disconnect is a core topic in our guest Rob Bowman's book, The Last Soul Company. It's the story of Malico Records, how three novices in Mississippi were able to build a hugely influential and long-running label key to the history of black music. It's a labor of love in a lot of ways, 50 years of an incredible label that you've documented uh, extensively here. Uh, I would wager this th to think uh, that a number of people who love music, who love soul music, maybe haven't heard of Malico Records per se, but they've certainly heard the artists in the playlist of their dreams. These songs will be familiar. Um, I love the fact that even though Malico isn't a household name uh, the way Stax and Motown are, I thought the description of the book, after more than 50 years of making black music for black people, uh, was pretty vivid and really resonated with me. You know, the whole idea of those sort of boundaries about what music is for what people, those have sort of broken down in the 21st century. There's a, you know, you, you see young people listening to all kinds of music and it almost has nothing to do with genre or generation. But in the 20, 20th century when Malico was, was, was started, these boundaries meant something, and there was a huge amount of segregation in the music business. Can you tell us a little bit about what Malico meant to the black community specifically? It didn't have a ton of white listeners, right? 
I mean, that, that's basically the implication there. Absolutely. It, in fact, your opening statement about how Malico is not a household name is so true. I often say it's a name that most white people just have never even heard of. In the black world, right. in the black gospel world, Malico is a name worth gold. Malico is a label that, despite being alive for 50 years, the longest-running independent label in American record history, longer than chess, longer than That's Atlantic, yeah. longer than Stax, longer than any of them. Malico has maybe had two records enter the top 10, even on the R&B charts. This is a label that's had a business model, partially by accident. The quote you read from the book's publicity, Malico's a label that made black music for black people. Tommy Couch, one of the three owners of Malico, said that to me the first day I met him. We make black music for black people. And indeed, that's what they did. And not just for black people. If you lived in the North... If you lived on the West Coast in the early 80s, you may not have had a clue what Malico was if you were a secular blues fan. By that time, of course, most black people had left blues behind anyway, except for pockets in Chicago, maybe down in Memphis, where local black musicians were supported, some of them having an international reputation with white fans. But the people Malico signed were people who had been soul stars largely in the 60s, maybe the early 70s, they'd recorded for labels like Stax, and those labels had gone bankrupt. They also did this with gospel. Signed tons of people recorded for Peacock, which had gone out of business, Nashville, which had gone out of business. They basically took what the larger industry, even the larger independent record industry, thought of as has-beens. Bobby Blueblend, Johnny Taylor, ZZ Hill, Denise LaSalle, Lattimore, Little Milton, all these people had had careers of substance in the 60s or early 70s. All of them couldn't even get a deal. Disco ruled supreme. None of them fit into that world. A few of them made efforts that failed badly. Johnny Taylor's Disco Lady being a massive exception. <laughs> but the only, you know, this is only real big disco hit. Just happened to be an extraordinarily huge yeah. hit. Shake it up. became the home for anachronisms, for artists past their time as far as the mainstream con was concerned. But what nobody realized, and I think not even Malico, but they found out by accident, was there was a whole population living in the South. They still had black radio with older disc jockeys, like a guy named Dick Kane Cole in Memphis, who when I was living there in the mid-80s, he was still on the air and had been a big jock there in the early 60s. He was still playing soul and blues records. He'd played new Malico releases. People were doing that in Shreveport, in Baton Rouge, in Jackson, Mississippi, in Macon, Georgia, let alone bigger cities like Atlanta, Dallas, Houston. And all of these artists became recategorized as Southern soul blues artists. Johnny Taylor, I remember saying to me, it's ridiculous. I haven't changed anything I'm doing as a soul music artist. But suddenly now, a marketing issue. I'm on Malico. Malico. I have to be blues. Carved out a niche for them. Uh, you know, the, the other quote that you write in the book is, uh, and I'm wondering if you're talking about race, business plan, generations, and hipness, or what, or all of the above. Malico's story 
by all rights, should never have happened. <laughs> you tell what it, So what were you thinking of specifically, right? Uh, what I mean is here's a label in Jackson, Mississippi. Who runs a record label in Mississippi, period? Seems impossible. Mm-hmm. The record industry is where? New York, Los Angeles, Nashville, lesser degree, maybe yeah. Memphis, briefly Chicago, but Jackson, Mississippi? You can't run a label out of there, and no one ever has with any success. The other thing is... The people who started the label, they didn't know what they were doing by their own admission. Hmm. They were two pharmacists, three pharmacists actually, eventually, who <laughs> loved music and during their university days had you know, been the social coordinator for their local fraternities and had booked a few acts and realized they could make a little money doing that if they booked them at other fraternities and other schools. They kept doing that when they moved to Jackson after graduating and then were bringing in some bigger acts. Hermits Hermits, for example, was one of Tommy Couch and Mitchell Maloof's big presentations in 65. They had a little club called the Hullabaloo Club named after the TV show Hullabaloo. Pop music for white kids and eventually some R&B music for white kids. Then it was like, hmm, Tommy grew up in Tuscumbia, Alabama, which, if you know, is part of the four cities that makes up what we call Muscle Shoals. Rick Hall, with the Fame studio and the Fame label, was having tremendous success there, largely recording for chess and Atlantic artists like Etta James or Aretha Franklin, but nonetheless, he had a studio, and Tommy thought, why don't I get a studio? And so, <laughs> so yeah, let's do this. Okay, now we got to find somebody to record. And it was literally who was in the neighborhood, who would stumble in. They didn't have connections. None of them were musicians. It turns out Tommy's got a pretty good ear when it comes to choosing songs for artists once he's got quality artists. But it took them yeah. years to get anywhere. In, in the mid-70s, they were about 60 days away from total bankruptcy. In 1980, they were actually flipping a coin to decide who got paid on Friday. Because they were pretty well done. Well, Stevenson at one point sold his house. He's one of the co-owners. Bought it back two years after they signed ZZ Hill because they made so much money with down-home blues and ZZ Hill that suddenly they were profitable. They stumbled into it. And they tried lots of things. They first success came with a guy from New Orleans, a great arranger, black uh, arranger, Wardell Kazare, who decided to use the Malico studio because it was cheaper than using some New Orleans studios where he had debts. He couldn't use Casimo Matassa studio. He owed him money. So he drives up to... <laughs> Pay up before you come in here. Yeah. yeah. So he drives up to Jackson, 200 miles away. He brings Gene Knight with him, and he brings King Floyd with him, and he records Groove Me on King Floyd. Groove Me, baby. And Mr. Big Stuff for Gene Knight. Now, Malico has a label, sort of, along with their studio, but not a label worth anything to anybody. So although Wardell has paid to use the studio and use some session musicians that Tommy's put together, he's slowly putting together a house band, they're not going to release these records on Malico. He tries to license them. Eventually, Groove Me goes to Atlantic, Mr. Big Stuff to Stax. They both become massive big hits. Who do you think you are? And Malico makes a residual on them, so they stay in business a little longer. They're close to going out of business. As I said, mid-70s, they had recorded a song in 73 by Dorothy Moore, Misty Blue, a cover of a country record that Tommy had thought would be a great record for her. Dorothy wasn't so sure. 
It sat in the can for two years. They tried to license it. All our early things were licensed. They couldn't license it. November 75, Stax is virtually bankrupt. Eddie Floyd's down at Malico, where he eventually signs a deal and becomes a Malico artist briefly. And he says, you've got to put out that Dorothy Moore record. He hears a tape of it and says, it's extraordinary. And nobody wants it. So they thought, forget it. We'll put it out ourselves. See what happens. It becomes one of their biggest hits ever and keeps them business for another two years. These kinds of things <laughs> kept happening. Yeah, miracle after miracle. After until miracle. they found out who they really were. And that wasn't until 1982 with ZZ Hill. I want you to amplify here, Rob, on, on ZZ Hill, because I remember getting that record. I was a big soul music fan, and then it went away. You couldn't get a record that was billed as a soul record in, in the early 80s, and all of a sudden, here comes ZZ Hill. All she wanted to hear is those down-home blues all night long. You know, and it was like, okay, they're calling it blues now, you know, but it still sounded like a soul record to me. Who was ZZ Hill? ZZ Hill was a journeyman musician. He'd recorded at least a dozen singles before he came to Malico. He had actually been on Atlantic briefly. He'd recorded in Muscle Shoals. He had never really gotten anywhere, but had managed to stick around the business enough to be an opening act on the Chitlin circuit. And he was looking for a label. Dave Clark ran into him and said, hey, why don't you come record for Malico? CZL didn't have anything else happening. Malico didn't have anything else happening. Dave Clark was the trusted person on both sides of that equation. And Down Home Blues were written by a guy named George Jackson. George Jackson's a really interesting person, unfortunately deceased, who wrote one bad apple for the Osmonds. Black guy. <laughs> <laughs> wrote, wrote good old rock, old rock and roll for Bob Seger. He's a black guy. Uh, mm -hmm. He wrote Too Weak to Fight for Clarence Carter. Uh, he wrote um, A Man and a Half for Wilson Pickett. He was an incredible writer. He was also a drunk. He had bad health problems. He abused himself. He was totally undogether. Malico signs him to a publishing deal. He would send him tapes, and there'd be 12 minutes of him rambling on, playing acoustic guitar, these drunken, coherent lyrics, but there'd be something about it, something to the groove they liked or the chorus. They'd have to phone him, get him when he was sober, and say, George, do you remember the lyrics to that song? And, and hopefully he could recite it to him so they could write it on it, because certainly couldn't get it off those tapes. And I'm being serious. Yeah. I'm being dead serious. And I'm not putting George Jackson down. He, he was going through a rough period in his life. He actually, when I met him and interviewed him, was totally sober. Malico had got him a health plan, fixed his teeth, put him up. Uh, he's living a you know, middle-class life and making tons of royalties. He became one of the prime songwriters for Malico in this period. Anyway, he'd been down on blues. He didn't think much of it. It was just one song and a tape they happened to have. It blows up. Total accident. Same thing with the blues is all right, Little Milton. Who would have guessed? And those are two of the biggest soul blues records ever. Neither one charts nationally in any significant way, by the, even if you look at the R&B charts. But they're radio staples in Southern Black Radio. And they sell significant copies. And Stuart Madison, the third owner of Malico, did something very smart. Once he saw Down Home Blues as an album cut getting play on all these black stations in the South, these little mom and pop places, 
he said, we're not going to put it out as a single. We're going to make people buy the album. Hmm. This song is so popular, we're not going to put it out as a single. And they sold a truckload of albums, and it kept him in business. Allowed Walt Stevenson to buy his house back. She says, I'm going to get my head back and party on the down home blues. Down home blues. Down home blues. Oh, she wanted to hear what those down home blues all night long. And once they got ZZ Hill, they quickly got Dave Clark. Most people listening to this won't know who Dave Clark is. Dave Clark was a man who was in his late 60s then and worked for Malico into his late 80s before he died. He's arguably the first promotion man in black music ever. He was doing promotion for the Jimmy Lunsford big band back in the 40s. Dave Clark had a sense of authenticity, a sense of believability, integrity, and respect everywhere in the black community. He literally could walk into virtually any black radio station and younger generation, older generation jocks knew who he was, respected him, and would work with him. He changed Malico's fortune. He was the one who got ZZ Hill to sign with him. He also convinced Denise LaSalle to sign with him. He convinced Little Milton to sign with him. He convinced uh, Bobby Blueland to sign with him. All these people come because of Dave Clark. They don't hire Dave Clark. They don't become the definitive soul blues label. Coming up, we'll talk with Rob about the even more influential part of Malico, the gospel side, how they stumbled into success there and made forward-thinking business choices that are still paying dividends in the digital era. That's up next on Sound Opinion. And we're back. This week, we're talking about Jackson, Mississippi label Malico Records with Rob Bowman, author of The Last Soul Company. Who's the artist that you would typify as uh, Malico and gospel at its best? Because they're just as strong in the gospel. Field. Oh, I'd say, in fact, they're stronger. The soul blues thing is really only from about 1980 to maybe 86, 87 at best. And then, unfortunately, a lot of those radio stations get bought up by Clear Channel and uh, the whole world changes. The soul blues basically continues at a much smaller level. Malico's not very involved in it after that. They stumbled into gospel. 1971, a local group called the Golden Nuggets comes by the studio, says, hey, we'd like to make a record. Uh, we're good. Tommy hears one song, likes it, puts it out. It does okay. In fact, Atlantic picks it up for distribution. big sales but there's potential Tommy brings them in to do an album the problem is the group really could just play this one groove every song is the same groove so they recorded <laughs> the album and gave up on it they don't try gospel again until the Jackson Southern Airs come by based in Jackson Mississippi that's why they're the Jackson Southern Airs and they'd had a number of gospel hits for Peacock Peacock was part of Don Roby's assemblage of labels Don Roby dies the label gets sold to ABC Paramount basically a major label what do they know about gospel? What do they care about gospel? It's also a big company. 
hundreds of employees. It's corporate. The Jackson Southerners were used to where they could just phone up the president of the company, Don Roby, in terms of Peacock, say, we're coming by, we want to pick up 300 albums, we're going on the road this weekend, we'll sell them at our shows, because that's how so many quartets sold their records at the shows. Uh, they couldn't do that with ABC. ABC is out in California. you got to order that stuff two or three weeks in advance, get it shipped to you. It's not happening for them. Malico's in their backyard. Why not try it? Tommy's attitude is, why not? we got nothing to lose. Puts out the first... I'm serious. <laughs> it's a recurring theme. It's by happenstance and accident. And they put out the album and it actually sells half decently. For Malico, half decently would have been 50,000 to 100,000 copies. That's big business for that label. For any major label, it's not even worth talking about. They become the label where old quartets come who are no longer viable anywhere else. They sign the original Soul Stirrers. They get the Sensational Nightingales. They get the Pilgrim Jubilees. They get Willie Neal Johnson. If you look at the gospel records, all these quartets, which again are an anachronism in the bigger gospel world, they all of these groups recorded between 10 and 23 albums for Malico over the years. <laughs> album after album. Sensational Angels, I think, of 23 albums on Malico. I don't know how many people own all 23 besides me, but I bet you, I bet you they have, they have loyal fans who literally every year when they'd come up here in, you know, Frog's Bottom, Mississippi or Memphis, Tennessee, they do the program, the merch table, there's the latest album. People bought the album. They later were buying the cassette as formats change, but they were buying year after year after year. It was a profitable business model. Malico's under the radar, but they're continually selling in enough numbers to keep them in business and eventually become profitable. They buy Muscle Shoals in 85, which just gives them the publishing, basically, and the studio, but they really just wanted the publishing. They also got a handful of records. But then in 86, they buy Vanessa Bell Armstrong's records on Onyx. For those who don't know, Vanessa Bell Armstrong, a huge gospel artist who broke out with the cover of Reverend James Cleveland's Feast Be Still in 83 or 4. They bought her catalog in 86. The, the big buy was December 31st, 86. They buy Savoy Records. Savoy Records gives them Reverend James Cleveland's catalog. It gives them the Ward Singers, Claire Ward. It gives them the Davis Singers. It gives them the Florida Mass Choir, the Georgia Mass Choir. It's the biggest catalog of female gospel groups and gospel choirs from 1942 mm. forward. Shortly afterwards, they get Apollo. They buy the Apollo label. That gives them Mahalia Jackson's essential repertoire pre from 1946 to 1953 in 54 she signed to columbia now sony but the records she cut from 46 to 53 are her best records by far they own them gonna move on up and in a gonna meet my loving mother is this indie label able to buy these valuable properties? Is it just that the major label system's not paying any attention? 
Uh, well, it happens in different ways. The Muscle Shoals story is interesting. They wanted to buy the publishing company because they, you know, big hits in that publishing company. But a bank isn't going to lend you money for a publishing company. They don't even understand how you make money off publishing. So they actually had to buy the studios to show the bank they're buying something tangible. But it was all borrowing money. They took risks. They borrowed big money to buy that. And the publishing company paid off. The studio did not. And they eventually mm -hmm. dumped the studio about 10 years later. And Savoy is a label in distress. Uh, the owner, Herman Lubinsky, had died a few years earlier. The label had been sold twice. The last owner of the label was only really interested in contemporary disco records. He didn't give a damn about the legacy of Savoy. And he drove the label into virtual bankruptcy, sold off the secular stuff to One Direction. He had left with the gospel stuff. Who wants gospel music? Gospel music is not big selling by corporate America, major labels, ways of thinking. Mm. You're not even get, going to get Barry Gordy to buy a gospel label. You know, he's, he's thinking much bigger than that. So Malico buys it. They have to borrow money again. And, and the amazing thing is they borrow a ton of money. And when they buy the label, they find out that there's all these warehouses of Savoy product just sitting around it's never been shipped anywhere because Savoy hadn't paid the bills for the pressings. But now they've bought it, they negotiate pennies on the dollar to pay off the debt that Savoy had to these various warehouses and pressing plants. They have a whole number of semi-trucks come rolling into Jackson, Mississippi, loaded with this vinyl. It takes them days and tons of people that they hire, you know, minimum wage, I'm sure, to sort it all out in this warehouse they rent across the street. They start doing TV marketing. Louise Candy Davis. Better than blessed. Reverend Clay Evans and the Fellowship Choir. And within a year, they've paid over half the debt just selling this dead vinyl that's been sitting in warehouses. And then finally in 88, Frank Williams, who had been a member of the Jackson of their heirs, decides... Why not have a Mississippi Mass Choir? There's a Florida Mass Choir. It's been big hits. There's a Georgia Mass Choir. Why don't we do a Mississippi Mass Choir? Puts it together, takes ads out all over Mississippi, additions 250 singers. 100 of them get the gig. The Mississippi Mass Choir blows the roof off of gospel sales. Biggest selling gospel <laughs> album in history when it comes out in 88. Y'all want to hear me singing? The old song went like this and just like this. It's hard. Did Tommy Couch, Stuart Madison, or Wolf Steven have any idea this might happen? No. In fact, they didn't even like the idea of Frank doing this because Frank was so valuable recording all of these quartets and they was afraid this damn choir was going to take him away from how he was making them, you know, the small change money that was keeping them in business and they were happy with. It, it really is one happy accident after another for 50 years. And once that happens, you can imagine suddenly Malico owns Savoy. They have the three biggest mass choirs. The mass choir movement's becoming the dominant part of gospel music. And, you know, things like Joy by the Georgia Mass Choir, written by Kirk Franklin when he's a teenager, it gets into the preacher's wife. <laughs> They just keep blowing things up. I'll, I'll give you 
Another interesting little bit of happenstance, although it shows their smarts too. Tommy Couch Jr., Tommy Couch's son, who now is president of the company and now one of four owners, embraced the digital world way ahead of Sony, Universal, EMI. Mm. All the people supposedly know what they're doing and said the record industry was going to hell. Tommy said, look, this is obviously the future. We give everything away. We put it all up on YouTube. We digitize everything we got. Mm. We give it away. We'll make peanuts on the streams. And of course, eventually, not just YouTube, Spotify, and every other, you know, title, every other streaming service possible. And they have millions of songs because of owning the Savoy catalog, the Muscle Shoals catalog, the Onyx catalog, the Apollo catalog. They then buy mm. Atlanta International Records, which is a huge Dottie Peoples, Reverend F.C. Barnes, another major, major gospel catalog. And the attitude is if we make 20 bucks here, 100 bucks here on any given obscure song that streams, fine. It all adds up. But again, it's getting it out there for commercials, samples. Okay, sue me, I'm rooting for everybody that's black. Everybody be asking my six Films, overseas licenses. They make tons of money. And in fact, Wolf Stevens' sole job, which he does every day when he comes to work, Monday to Friday, is digitizing more and more and more obscure releases that they've bought that they haven't yet been able to get up there, even though they got hundreds of thousands of titles up there. It's, <laughs> it's, it's extraordinary. And for some of the Savoy stuff, there's no tape copies. They're finding collectors with vinyl, digitizing those, putting them up, but they own them, and they'll make money off of them. So, so Rob, before we let you go, uh, you know, we play the Desert Island uh, jukebox game here on uh, Sound Opinions. Either Greg or I get to pop a quarter every week and take a song we can't live without. So if you were forced, uh, I mean, you've written a beautiful book about it, as you had earlier about uh, Stax, Soulsville, USA. Now you've written the definitive book, The Last Soul Company, the Malico record story, about this great label. Uh, one track, one Malico track that you couldn't live without, that you would turn to a kid who says, I don't know. I don't know, Professor. I don't know, Professor, if I have any interest whatsoever in anything you're talking about. Where would you send her? You know you're killing me. But if I had to pick one, I'm going to pick Lashun Pace. I know I've been changed. Now, mm. I don't know what your listenership is. Probably a lot of them have never heard of Lashun Pace. In the gospel world, she's huge. Part of the anointed Pace singers and even bigger as a soul artist. This is an old song, probably 50 years old. It was recorded live at a church service. It wasn't actually part of the program. She just decided to go into it. And she started it a cappella, and the drummer picked up on it. This mm. will blow the roof off the sucker, blow the <laughs> ear pods out of your ears, shred your uh -huh. speakers, and Fry your brain. This is among the most intense give us the spirit, is what music I've ever heard in my life. Wow. <laughs> Rob Bowman's got the spirit. I think he just had a Holy Ghost moment. You know what? <laughs> you sounded like me when I get excited. Rob. I preached in black churches. Um, I could have the spirit. I, I know that world very, very well. Anyway, this record has more spirit than I could ever have, and I got a little bit. Oh, it's awesome. You know the 
I love it. I love it. We have been talking to Rob Bowman, uh, professor of ethnomusicology, uh, author of the definitive book about Stacks, Soulsville, USA, and now the definitive book about Malico, the last soul company. Rob, thanks for being on Sound Opinions. Thanks, guys. You have a great day, and uh, hope to talk to you again sometime. You betcha. <laughs> thanks, Rob. That wraps up our conversation with Rob Bowman, and as always, we want to hear what you think. Start a conversation in our Facebook group or leave us a voice message at our website, soundopinions.org. Mr. Cott, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, we've got a whole bunch of records we need to catch up on. This has been a big month for new album releases, and we're going to review some of the best of them. The flowers are blooming, and so are the new records. For more Sound Opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from around the globe via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience, you can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's sponsor at soundopinions.org. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our intern, Sol Delgadillo. <laughs>